Hi, and welcome to Literary Work in Progress, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Caitlin, and I'm really hoping my life will turn into a rag-to-riches situation. I'm Cameron, and my life is a psychological thriller. I'm Kristen, and I would like my life to be a heist story, because then I can end up with the money, because Caitlin already took the rags-to-riches <laughs> part. I'm Kate, and my children are trying to make my life into a heist story, and I'm trying really hard to fall out of jail. <laughs> That's fantastic. This week, we have a special guest, Kate Watson. She's the author of Seeking Mansfield and Shoot the Moon, which will come out in 2018. Kate, can you tell us about yourself and your books? Yeah, so I am from Canada originally, moved to the States when I went to college, met a boy and stayed, and I've lived kind of in some various places, uh, Brazil, Israel, the American South, and Utah, Arizona. So I like exploring kind of different places, even if it's something like Chicago where my books are set. I like kind of feeling like I'm delving into the actual city and the setting. Um, I love retellings. I'm a huge fan of the classics. So, so far, everything I've done has been with a classic spin on it. And uh, my, my debut came out in May of this year, 2017, and it's called Seeking Mansfield. It's a retelling of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. And the companion novel is called Shoot the Moon. And it was pitched as Great Expectations meets the 90 Pokers movie Rounders. So that's exactly what teens are looking for these days. Fortunately, <laughs> oh, Rounders retelling. So, yeah. Well, of course. <laughs> Who isn't? <laughs> that's awesome. We're so glad that you're here with us today. So I don't know if people could tell from our introductions, but today we're talking about plot types, formulas, and how we go about plotting. This this is my pitch because as a writer, I frequently have a hard time coming up with engaging plots in a way that is concise and straightforward. So today we just kind of wanted to talk about what are some good ways to go about planning and what sort of elements do we need to keep in mind when we're plotting? Well, I thought when we first started talking about this, that this is actually a really difficult question because there are lots of types of stories where you have really firm framework. I mean, Kate, you write retellings and so you've got the general plot set in front of you, but you have to figure out a way to make it your own. Or mm -hmm. you can tell a story that's, I don't know, there's a whole list of different kinds of stories you could tell. You can tell a quest, like Lord of the Rings story, or you can tell um, a whodunit, where you've got a detective who has to figure out who killed the body they find at the beginning. But for me, I feel like I end up plodding by the seat of my pants sometimes. <laughs> and so I think this is going to be an interesting discussion. <laughs> so with me, I like to start with an idea that I want to sell. So for example, a 16-year-old girl is forcibly enrolled in an academy of evil and wants to kick all the butt. From there, I start building a plot and characters that will make that idea believable. So I ask myself, so what needs to happen for people to not only believe that this 16-year-old girl can win, but also that she will look awesome while doing it and that you'll also not hate her for doing the things that she needs to do? Like killing lots of people. Exactly. So, I know this is going to make Caitlin cringe, but from there I think in terms of the tropes that support that kind of a story. So, for example, what justifies a teenage girl being a brilliant manipulator while still being sympathetic? Well, I make it so that it wasn't something she chose. She grew up in a deadly decadent court, which is a trope, and she had to learn how to deal with that kind of thing. And so a then I ask, a legend going on here. Yeah, exactly. So then I ask the next question, well, what justifies a deadly decadent court? Well, I think, well, in the real world you had Elizabethan England. It's so like, okay, well, what justify that? And so on and so on. And it's actually a really great segue into world building, too, because you start mm -hmm. to get all the different pieces that you need to make something engrossing and believable. And then you have, with, with the way I do it, I like it because I already have my climax and end figured out before I start. Kate, what about you? How do you go about planning your books? So I use Blake Snyder's Save the Cat 
beat sheets. I like those quite a lot. I'm not a firm plotter, but I can't say I'm an actual pantser either. When I get an idea, it usually starts with you know some kind of concept or even a character or a voice or something like that. So once I find that, then I usually like to do a lot of research. And I find that I am going out and just trying to understand everything I can about that world or about whatever character quirks or you know elements of the plot that have come to me so far. So I, in the, in the process of doing a lot of research, I usually find that that gives me other ideas. And then I'm able to add that into the beat sheets. I don't follow them perfectly, but I do use that as my framework and I like that a lot. So can you give us a description of, of a beat sheet? I mean, I think we're all familiar with it, but maybe our listeners aren't. Yeah. So a beat sheet is a screen. It's a screenwriting technique that this guy Blake Snyder invented. And what it does is it, you know, if you were to say that I have a 255 page novel, then it would tell you that within the first, you know, 60 pages, you have to introduce the protagonist and you need to set up a hook for the reader, set up a plot point, that kind of thing. Within that, it's going to tell you like very specific things. So your opening scene needs to be done by page six and by page 13, you need to have asked some kind of question that the reader wants answered. So then it goes through and tells you about the plot points and the pitch points that you want to hit. And it, it reminds you when you need to have your antagonist by, you know, introduced by or whatever your antagonistic forces might be. And then just kind of goes through what, you know, the general page range for, for accomplishing each of these things so that you make sure that your pacing is making sense for an audience and is something that is satisfying for an audience. Like Toy Story is a really good example of like the, the entire franchise of screenwriters who use that perfectly. Everything falls within, within the exact minute that it's supposed to fall in. And so emotionally, it's very, very satisfying. You know, you get all your highs and lows, your your gasps and your, you know, tears, that kind of thing. So I, I've, I've really enjoyed using beat sheets. Do you stick to that pretty rigorously or do you allow yourself some leeway? Yeah, I definitely allow myself some leeway. I'm not really comfortable with a really strict outline. With Shoot the Moon, I, we actually sold it on Synopsis. And even having that much detail already set out was actually a little bit uncomfortable for me. And I think I probably would have written the same story without it. But just feeling kind of confined was a little bit different. And now I'm doing NaNoWriMo and I'm pantsing the entire thing. So I'll usually try to figure out one step ahead of myself. And I don't like that either. So <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely an person. I sometimes end up with a story idea because I have like a nightmare. And so I'll have this one scene that I want to put into a book. Like I started a book a while ago where I had a dream about a person who's on the run from zombies. And it was a really, really vivid dream. And I was like, I really need to put that in a book. And so I structured this entire book around that one idea. And it made me start asking questions like, well, where would zombies come from? And where would this happen? And it's just like what Kate and Cameron have both said, where you start with an idea and then it, it starts you on this domino effect of asking questions and figuring stuff out. How about you, Kristen? You haven't weighed in yet. Yeah, I haven't weighed in because everything I write, I end up doing slightly differently. And I'm not 100% sure that I've found a way that works perfectly without any major cons. I think a lot of times I will, I start with a scene in mind as well. Usually it's a bit of conversation and I want to find a way to make that conversation happen and will then format kind of a setting or a premise around that. But I actually, I have tried a couple of things recently. Like Kate was saying, like with NaNoWriMo, I feel like a lot of times when I write, I am pantsing where it's just the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And I feel the same as Kate in that it's a little stressful for me. Somebody in one of my creative writing courses recommended something that's like index card planning, where basically 
each index card is a separate scene in your book and you write the physical thing that happens on one side and you kind of rearrange to make like the emotional storyline that happened on the other side. So the different emotional impact of the scene can change depending on where you put it. I know it works for people. For me, it just turned my room into a blizzard of index cards. It was very distracting. My roommate thought I was insane. I just had them taped all over my walls. I looked like like a killer in like a TV show. With, like yarn, like, yeah. linking things is, together. Yeah. Is, is that different from normal? Ha, ha, oh, okay, ha. thanks. Okay. So um, that's kind of like storyboarding. Yeah. Yeah, kind but of. like not effective storyboarding. <laughs> but the most recent one that I have found that I like is there was a speaker at LTOE life, the universe and everything. Her name is Rebecca road, I think. And I know Caitlin can't do it this way, but I actually really like it where basically you come up with a log line. So a character is setting a weakness for that character, a goal, a roadblock, some consequences for winning or losing. And then based off that log line, you come up with every, every possible thing that could happen, just like a huge list of things that could happen somewhere in the story. And from that, you pick like the top five most intense and use those as the hook, the climax, the midpoint, the point of no return and the crisis. So it's just a way to structure like the important plot elements. I'm air quoting that for people who can't see. But <laughs> those of you not benefiting yeah. from the video feed. <laughs> yeah, because there is none. Um, and then basically I just adjust as needed. And I like that because it's a really easy way for me to, I don't know, I don't feel constricted by it because I'm coming up with everything and I can adjust as needed. And it also gives me a chance to just brainstorm a couple of pages of crazy things that could happen. And sometimes they're really crazy and kind of stupid, but I think that's kind of the point of brainstorming is to hit all the possibilities and land on the ones that work best. So what do you think the benefit of knowing typical plot formats is? What's the point of knowing like what a heist story looks like or, or like log lines? What's the benefit of knowing exactly where a story should go, quote unquote? I think this has to do a lot with reader expectations. The same way Kate was talking about how like the saving the cat, killing the cat. Saving the, the yeah, thing about the, the cat. cat. Save the cat, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the save the cat thing where like your audience expects a particular story. And I think there are ways to better satisfy your audience than other ways. And with knowing different story types, I think you can surprise them by putting them in new circumstances. And you can also kind of fulfill expectations by, you know, having something familiar, even if the rest of your world that you're writing it isn't. No, I think that's, that's exactly what I would have said. I think that the benefits to, to knowing what tropes exist, what plots, you know, what, what arcs are, are really common is just that you can make it emotionally satisfying, that you can, you can give a positive reader experience, but you can still then figure out what you want to subvert, what you want to do differently. I know Brandon Sanderson has talked about how he finds out all of the different types of arcs that he's going to have in one story, like the romance arc, the heist arc, the, you know, sports, like a redemption sort of thing. And he figures all those out and he layers them all. Like, I, I loved that idea, and that's something I've wanted to try. And so maybe I'll do that when I'm not trying to do nano and just, like, you know, spit out crap words. Yeah. <laughs> but, I think you something... know, I think that sounds so fascinating to, you know, to consider it that way, because then you're, you are layering in so many different things that you can still have a lot of different satisfying and surprising things happen within that story. Something else that Sanderson said, or that we learned while we were in his class, is that it's nice to take a story that is usually set in one place like a sports story or a redemption story and put it in a different setting because it gives it a really fresh feel without feeling like you're redoing something. 
been done a million times. I was going to say earlier, when you were talking about keeping track of all the different kinds of plots you do, I was just going to attest that that could be a very valuable thing, um, at least for as scatterbrained as I am. The first novel I ever wrote, I got about nine-tenths of the way through and realized I had done absolutely no character development <laughs> on one of my characters. And I remember, I could wasn't this supposed to be a big deal? Like, oh, I'm 60,000 words in, and he's literally the same person he was when he started. Dang. <laughs> That's not engrossing. <laughs> Time to tweak. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Well, what was then really funny is then I tried to make up for it in a couple of pages. I was not very good at that. <laughs> 60,000 words, I'm and gonna, you're like, and then you cried. Exactly. It was very sad. <laughs> I'm going to do an entire book's worth of character development in a page. <laughs> it was bad. I think I have one more thing to say about the benefits of knowing plot types, and that is that for the manuscript reading that I do for my internship at the literary agency, a lot of the manuscripts that I read sound great within the first, like, 10 pages for 50 pages, but when I actually get through and start going through these manuscripts and seeing more and more of the plot and trying to keep track of it, I find myself disappointed a lot when people are sticking to pre-established stuff without changing anything. And at the same time, if there's nothing familiar in there, I am so lost that it's like an automatic rejection just because it doesn't make sense. I've always heard that it's much, much easier to sell a book if you can tell the person you're selling to what they're buying. So like, if you can say, this is a rags to riches story this is a whatever and then then exactly insert a little bit elevator pitch here with the point being the the addendum you don't want to just say this is a rags to riches story you want to say this is a rags to riches story in the swamp of cthulhu or you know you see what i'm saying (laughs) i would like to read that story (laughs) some note is that sometimes books that get published i just really wonder how they got pitched because they're so complicated like I, I love The Raven Cycle by Maggie Seabotter, but, like, the last book, the plot is so complicated that on, like, the jacket cover, it doesn't even, like, bother Try. trying to explain it. <laughs> I will say that I feel like knowing kind of where stories go or, like, what the hero's journey is or, like, what a journey story looks like if your story isn't working, it's it's nice to go and look at the points that those stories hit and to see whether or not your story kind of follows that. Because if it doesn't, then you can tweak things to match that a little bit better. And sometimes that allows for a better plot resolution or character resolution or whatever. Um, I, Caitlin, you were talking about your A plot, B plot, C plot. Do you want to go into that a little bit? or I, I guess I can. I like to think about my stories as having like A, B, and C plot, where the A story is like the big plot question thing that's going to happen. It's usually the plot that gives the story its genre. Like Last Star Burning is a dystopia and the main plot stuff that's happening concerns this sickness that everybody's trying to keep from getting that causes people to attack each other and kill each other. That's the A plot. And then the B plot is usually a character arc, like where your character starts and where they're going. And then the C plot for me, because I write YA, tends to be a love story. And so... I usually, as I'm plotting, think about them in those terms so that I can resolve everything, I guess, at the A plot arc, the B plot arc, and the C plot arc, and I'm trying to put them together. That's so smart. Kate, how do you keep track of all the loose ends in your writing? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I should think about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I find myself getting surprised on occasion, you know, as I'm, as I'm going through because I don't outline perfectly. There will be those things where I have like, oh, I had no idea that these two people were related this way or that this was so-and-so's backstory. And that happens to me every once in a while. But for the most part, I try to write that kind of stuff, like the big things beforehand. And it's really, for me, the journey 
of, of getting to each of those points. That's really where the wiggle room is. So, and that's one of the things with the, with the, uh, the beat sheet that I like so much is just that I do have to kind of write down the, those big things and, and kind of like Caitlin. So like right now, one that I'm working on, I have two different beat sheets I'm looking at. There's an author named Jamie Gold who adapts beat sheets for different, different genres. So I have one that's the overall story structure. And then I have one that's the romance planning beat sheet. And so I do my characterization separately. I just kind of write not Bibles, but, you know, several paragraphs about each character, uh, you know, know just a handful of things. And so I have that in my Scrivener separately. And then I have, you know, the, the main story arc, the romance arc, and I try to build those two off of each other. So I think that helps me more than anything, just keep everything pretty much tied in. I'm definitely going to have to look for those beat sheets. <laughs> <laughs> They're great. They're really good. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next section of our podcast, which is where we critique a submission. A quick review of how we critique is that we spend about two minutes talking about things that we liked or that the author did well in their submission. And the second part, the final, <laughs> the final eight minutes we spend talking about things that maybe didn't sit well with us or that could take a second look. So this submission is called Prescribed. It is about a boy named Tristan who has apparently lost his mother and is in a really complicated situation. We see his mom's funeral and some kind of scary relatives. So what are some things that we liked? I really love the first line. It comes in with, I didn't own a single tie. And I feel like that just sets the tone for the voice. And it just tells us so much about the character. I feel like the first few paragraphs in general really used voice and were really good. And then on top of that, we had at least for me, the just sort of offhand mention about the police and the gunpowder mm-hmm. really made sure that I at least finished the first page. I thought there was some pretty good setting stuff, especially near the end where Tristan is thinking and he's talking about how he's got bad memories associated with the way gunpowder smells, but how he wants to hold on to the way Flagstaff, Arizona smells. and Which is where it's set. Yeah, exactly. I just, I thought it was a nice contrast and a good way to bring in smell because as we all know, I think <laughs> that's not used well enough, usually. I, there was one part that, in addition to the things you guys are mentioning, where they're in the car and he looks over and sees this couple laughing. And I like how he is very judgmental about that, how he's upset, how he's, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want them to be happy. It shows a lot about his state of mind right there and probably a lot about what his journey is going to have to entail. So I have lots of good voicey showing of who the character is. I did want to second Cameron's thing. I feel like the way the police are introduced, we have our character upstairs and he's trying to find a tie and he's trying to get ready for this thing and we don't know what it is. And then he kind of offhandedly mentions the police let him in because they were still searching for evidence in the house. And I thought that was just the way that was handled was great. I will add the caveat that we might talk about that again in a second, but it, I really liked the way it was handled. I liked too, how it feels like he's, I don't know if it's a he or she actually wrote this, but the author is setting up a lot of intrigue and a lot of questions for us and a lot of things that I want answered. So that was, it's a nice feeling like the author does have an idea of where they're going to take us. All right. So some things that might need a second look. So one thing I think that while starting with a funeral is a really emotional scene, I think that it would be more emotional if we knew who the characters were beforehand. Like it's, it's difficult to step into tragedy of someone else's life and feel it as acutely as you would if like they were your close friend or if you knew them particularly well. And so I, I'm not going to get prescriptive, but as I read a response, I think that 
it would have resonated more if like I knew more about the characters. I think I felt the same way. I wasn't necessarily unhappy with starting with a funeral, but I feel like we spent a lot of time at the funeral. Most of the submission is sitting and listening to the people speaking at the funeral. I felt like I was at the funeral for a very long time. Yeah. We saw almost every moment. And I actually will say that throughout the whole submission, I feel like we're doing a whole lot of setting up of what happened before and perhaps what's to come. We make it clear that this wasn't just his mom dying. She was murdered and very clearly states on several occasions that it was his stepfather that did it. And while I feel like it's really great that we have that set conflict, we have this boy and like family members from his stepfather that are there and they won't go away. Like we have a conflict set up right here at the very beginning. However, I feel like it was stated a lot of times when I would have been okay with just like the hints that I was given. Because I think maybe for me as a reader, I like being able to figure things out rather than having like all the clues given and then the answer given immediately, I guess. Yeah. But I don't know what the rest of the story looks like. So I can't, I mean, I can't give reader response on what the rest of it looks like and how it's set up, but that's what I took from the first chapter. So it feels like the murder of this of the mother is like the big mystery. Is that what you're saying? No, I, I guess what I'm saying is that... The, I actually am not sure what the plot of okay. this book is going to be because I felt like at the beginning we have like kind of this thrillerly like surprise happen where we're like, I'm getting a tie and then these policemen come in and there's gunpowder and I wasn't expecting that. And so I immediately was expecting for the rest of it to be like that, I guess, for it to be surprises. And I'm not sure what's going to happen next, but then that's not what it was. It made me feel like this might be a book about the character grieving or like getting over it, or it might be a character who's going to go like vigilante justice, or it could be a book. I mean, the name of the book is prescribed and it mentions he's on painkiller. It could be a book about addiction. I'm not really sure. So I'm going to kind of agree, kind of disagree. On the one hand, personally, I thought that the funeral scene and how long it is works as works with the characters we have because I personally I thought the voice was strong enough that I was invested enough in the characters that the I thought the, I thought the funeral was meaningful I will attach the caveat to that that given how much space it does take up I think the author with the skill that they've shown could do more to have have that same amount of space still have the funeral be that long but get more done um, I think because I agree that aside from I didn't, I didn't pick up on the, uh, the addiction thing, which I think could be intriguing. But when I was reading it, the only, the only kind of plot promise I latched onto was the idea that there was going to be a trial. But I didn't find that too compelling because the lawyer was talking about how, well, it's, it's going to be open and shut. We don't really have to, it won't be first degree, but we can get him for second degree, no problem. I'm like, well, that's, that's not particularly gripping. So I do, I do feel like there could be more done as far as making promises about what the rest of the book's going to be about. Oh, I forgot to say that I liked the evil stepbrother Sean, who was really nice and and oh, helpful like at the beginning. And then, yeah, way to make me want to stab someone. <laughs> I'm actually, I think I'm with you, Caitlin. I, I felt like the author really knows what's going to happen. I don't feel like I necessarily have a firm idea of what this story is going to be, and because of that, it definitely felt like the the funeral scene was info dumpy. But I wasn't quite sure what information I was supposed to be getting because it's all so, it's all so specific. And, and I would like to have been able to figure some things out on my own. I think that some of these things, you know, depending on the rest of the story, obviously would be better served if we could figure them out slowly as things are going along. 
There's not a lot of mystery. There's not a lot of questions at this point. I also did feel like a lawyer coming in the middle of the funeral and saying all these things is like a level of gauche that I I would be so frustrated by reading this that I just went to two funerals. My grandparents, super, super old, so no problem. But the the idea of a lawyer showing up to talk about that kind of thing just really strains credulity to me. And that's the kind of thing that bumps me out enough that I start second guessing other things within the story that I maybe would have accepted as I was going along. Well, not just that the lawyer shows up, the lawyer shows up and justifies his appearance by saying, this is really important that we talk about this now. And then yeah. he doesn't talk about anything that's really important. To, he basically, all he right. says, all he says is, we'll meet tomorrow to talk about it after mm-hmm. saying it's really important that I don't, <laughs> he could have just said, we'll talk about this tomorrow. Cause that's literally all he says. Mm-hmm. So, so as far as promises go, which are so important in your first chapter, especially when you're on submission and that's maybe all that an agent internet editor is going to read, just think really clearly about what this book is about and then make those promises. I think one other thing is that there is a lot of telling and then showing and then restating. So we had some examples, but a lot of it is stuff like, I guess, Tristan's interior thoughts where he'll think something like, man, I'm really depressed. And then he'll do something that shows that he's really sad about it. And then he'll say it again. And I think that's something that's pretty easily fixed in editing just by cutting out all the telling, not all of it, but good amount. choosing the part that you want to say and then only saying it once. Exactly. Yeah. So on the one hand, I could only notice this because it was really good to begin with, but I feel like, especially moving into the second half of the submission, that the older brother's characterization was inconsistent. It felt like to me, like early on, he felt extremely on edge and extremely driven by emotion. And then as the submission was first, there's a couple of incidences where after we get, we get, we get stuff that makes me think, Oh, he's going to attack this guy in the middle of the funeral. And then he gets talked down in like a sentence. Um, and that, I think that happens a couple of times. Like, like, well, this is later on there. There's a point where the uncle is able to hold back what I'm assuming are two older teenage boys in the middle of having, you know, their stepbrother whose father killed their mom talking <laughs> trash to them. And I'm like, is this like uncle, while she's going is, into the ground is, as she's going yeah. into the ground? I'm like, is this uncle Superman? I, I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I'm not sure how I'd rate my ability to anyway, get the idea. And, and, and there's just a point where all of a sudden Corey waxes philosophical about how this is one of the hardest things he's ever done, but we have to be strong. And it, it just felt out of character to me. Based on the rest of the, based on the rest of the yeah. show, based on the rest of it. I will say one other thing, and um, this totally could have been on purpose and that's fine. There are lots of really short, choppy I and he statements, which could totally be like trying to represent the main character's state, but I didn't feel like it was consistent enough for me to feel like it was on purpose. It just kind of felt like it was there sometimes. And so it made me feel like it was not well thought out writing versus on purpose. So, All right. Thanks so much, Kate, for coming on the show. We've really valued you sharing your experiences and this awesome beat sheet thing, which really I am going to use. <laughs> Good, all enjoy. You li- They're awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to all you listeners, definitely uh, check out or buy Seeking Mansfield and shoot them in when it comes out. This has been Literary Work in Progress. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Hi, Caitlin here. If you're interested in looking at the submission that was featured in today's podcast, you can find it on our website, literarywip.wixsite.com slash podcast. That's literarywip.wixsite.com slash podcast.
If you're interested in submitting your work for us to look at, you can find our submission guidelines on that same website. And we'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to our podcast in iTunes and leave us a rating and comment while you're there because it helps other people to discover our podcast. Thanks and see you next week.